0: All right, take your Bible, please, this morning and turn with us to the book of Mark, chapter number 15, the book of Mark, chapter number 15. I'm going to read just one verse in your hearing this morning, and then we'll attempt to come back and and expound the passage. If you'll stand with me just for a moment, the book of Mark, chapter number 15, verse number 22. This year I've chosen to do... The, the recount of the cross and all the things surrounding it out of the book of Mark, and to follow the narrative of Mark. Uh, it's it's for, many, for many years, I've done the sayings of the cross today. And I'll have that on the radio this week. That'll be, I'll do this, the sayings of the cross. And that's typically what I do on this day. But today I'm gonna to depart from that. And I'm in a series uh, that I began strictly out of the book of Mark and using the other synoptic gospels as uh, some commentary. But I'm interested in what the Bible has to say in chapter uh, number 15 of the book of Mark, verse number 22. And the Bible says, and they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. Can we pray together? Father, help us now, I pray, to rightly divide the word of truth and may your word go forth with power in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you very much and please be seated. Now, let me recount and recap if I can. We began our series with a message uh, entitled, uh, on the 26th, we, 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 we spent and looked at a message entitled, Time in Gethsemane, and talking about the, the, the torture of being, being made sin for us. When Christ, that's, what, that's, where it, that's where it took place, where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And so, uh, there he prayed in the garden three times to the point that angels had to minister unto him because he was doing battle with the Satan. I don't believe it was ever to get out of the cross, but rather to get to the cross. That he was battling because the devil's wanting to kill him in, a, in a, an isolated garden. And he was battling trying to get to the cross. That was set his face like a flint. And then from there we came into the treason of Galicantu. Galicantu is a Latin term that, that means... The cock crows. Uh, gala is, uh, if you, uh, I, I, in Spanish, gallo is a rooster. And so it would probably be pronounced more like ga, ga in, in the Latin, gallicantu. But there's a church there called the Church of Gallicantu. I've been there. And, but it's where the cock crew, where Peter denied the Lord. And then uh, this past went last Sunday, both those services, and then this past Wednesday, we looked at the trial of Gabbatha. And the word Gabbatha is, again, a word that's used uh, for the place called the pavement, and it's used in Scripture. And so the time on Gethsemane, the treason at Galicantu, the trial of Gabbatha, and then next Sunday, the Lord willing, we'll look at the triumph over the grave, and that'll be Resurrection Sunday, and we'll celebrate the triumph over the grave. And, And I look forward, that's one of my favorite Sundays of the year, is to preach on the Resurrection but at the same time, I dread this one today more than any other. I dread preaching on the cross. It bothers me to preach on the cross. It bothers me to hear songs about the cross. I mean, it just does. Uh, it bothers me, and it ought to bother us, because that was my cross. <laughs> you need to understand, that's your cross. You said no, that's Barabbas' cross. Well, if you'll read the scripture It was my sins that nailed him to that cross. And so uh, I'm I'm entering into this this morning, and I want you to understand something as we start here, that in this day and time, we don't put near as much emphasis on how we die. People die in obscurity and in hospice care and whatever. That was not the way it used to be. Obituaries often contained, uh, went home to be with the Lord while surrounded by his loving family and wife of so many years. They would call the family in. People would come from far and wide to get to be there when Dad died. It's a big thing. Part of our culture. I mean, everybody's going to die. And we just want to push it out as far as this generation just wants to push it out as far as we can, not think about it. They used to think about it. If you will look at the, at the monuments and the graveyards, if you look at the inscriptions on the monuments, how you died was a big deal. And dying with honor made all the difference, okay? And so uh, that's, that's how so many of our troops marched off into war, knowing that many would never come back is because they would die with honor. They would die for a purpose. Their life would count for something, and so uh, so many uh, that, that never came back, they, but they died for a cause. And I can stand in a pulpit this morning and preach because they died for that cause. And they died with honor. But I want you to understand that death was not the thing that the Romans used to cause people to fear and to stay in line. But what they would do to you while you died, the Romans would torture you. They had devised something called a cross. And they, it was unique pretty well to them to the point that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. No matter what, what the problem was, they, they couldn't be crucified. It was against the law to crucify a Roman. But they would crucify all of their provinces and all of their subservient countries and people. And when they would crucify them, it was a sign. The problem of crucifixion was it wasn't just do it and it's over. They knew how to make it go on and on and on and they would make you suffer. But worse, they would strip you of any honor that you had ever had in your life. To die naked on a cross was one of the most horrible, excruciating, terrible things. I mean, people would pray for their loved ones on a cross to die. They would pray for God to take them. But the Romans knew how to give them just enough water and put just enough bend in their knees so that they could breathe and so that they could stay alive. And they could keep them alive for days. And they would, on purpose, keep them alive to make them suffer. And it was always in a prominent place to where people coming by would see that and say, You're next. You go against us, buddy. You're next. Some of, the mad, uh, some of the mad emperors of Rome deforested the area leading into the city of Rome. They deforested it, making crosses, crucifying subjects. I mean, they cut out all the trees to make crosses. The, the way was lined with people being crucified. And this is how they ruled. This is how they brought people into subjection. I want you to understand that the king of glory willingly submitted himself to be disgraced by a public crucifixion. Now, all the pictures, and rightly so, display a loincloth, and I hope that was true. But many times they would display someone completely naked to add to the shame and to add to the misery. I want to put in with you this morning in the book of Mark, chapter number 15, and I want to look beginning in verse number 20. And I'm interested in that phrase, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, can I just say there's a couple of different things that people say about that? I have seen a picture. I've been there. And if you of oddly enough, where apparently where near Calvary at one time was like a limestone quarry. Now, believe it or not, it's the city bus garage. So when you're standing up on what's called Gordon's Calvary, the bus station's right there. And all of those people in those buses, they never look up and see that. But I've got postcards and I can show you pictures that they say that the the mountain eroded and it left almost like a skull-looking picture. And it is a white-looking, yellowish-white-looking, sandstone-type mountain, uh, limestone-looking mountain. And they say that it was called the, the Place of the Skull because it actually looked like a skull. Others have said it was called the Place of the Skull because it was the place of death. It was outside the city wall, but it was up high enough that it could be seen and you could look from a lot of places in town and look and see crosses over on the hill. And if you were close enough, you could hear the people crying. You could hear the nails being hammered in. And so the place of the skull, Golgotha. And I, so I, I want to pursue the thought, what was? What was Golgotha? First of all, it was the place of the skull. Look what the Bible says. We're, 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 now, we're back in the narrative. Uh, he has been to the Praetorian Guard. They have went through this mock, mock trial. He's been before Pilate, silent, would not defend himself, and then he turns them over to the Praetorian Guard, which are the, the secret service, or uh, or worse, the, the in Hitler's it would be the the SS, the Schutzstaffel, the gun squad, is how that would be translated, and they were the ones that carried out the hideous things uh, that Pilate would command. And so the Bible tells us about the preparations for Calvary. Look in verse number 20. And when they had mocked him, when they had mocked him, they had put a purple robe on him. Purple was a sign of royalty. And they had mocked him that he was the king of the Jews. And when they had mocked him, the Bible says, uh, they, they removed that purple robe. The scripture says they took off the purple from him and apparently put his own clothes back on him. What happens when you have, you've been, had your back beaten and, and, and the lictor has taken, and, and, and I've not even gone in this year to what a scourging was. Many people did not survive the scourging. To be scourged usually was crippling. Uh, To be scourged was the next thing to death. Not only did he get the maximum penalty that a a survivor would get, that did not have the death sentence, the scourging, but he also got the maximum penalty of crucifixion. It was rare to scourge someone and to crucify them, but that's what he got. And the Bible says uh, they took off the purple from him, and they put on his own clothes and led him out to crucify him. They found out, the Romans found this out, that if you hang someone by their hands, that the nails will pull through, and so they have, there had to be another way, so they would put a nail through the feet, but still, if you put weight on the ribcage, and you hang somebody down with arms outstretched kind of like mine are right now, what happens is you can inhale But you can't exhale the muscles that it takes to get rid of the air. And so it turns into a light pant. And so you start having oxygen deprivation. So the Romans figured out, hey, we can extend this by bending their legs a little bit and then driving a nail through their ankles. By bending their legs, we can put a little bit in their knees where they can actually push up to exhale but can you imagine pushing up on those nails against those bones, Against the, can you imagine the pain of that? I read after a doctor who said that it was not motionless, that the cross was full of movement because in order to breathe, the person had to rise up. They would, they would relax and inhale. They had to rise up to exhale, relax to inhale and rise up to exhale. And this could go on for days all on the pain of those nails, when they would come down, the pain of their hands. And then when they'd come back up, the pain of the, of the ankles, of the nail through their feet. I want you to understand, not before or since have they ever devised anything that was as hideous, that was as cruel, and that was as merciless as the cross. Nobody ever survived it. Nobody ever came down from the cross. It was the end, but hey, you were doing good. You see, they still beheaded people. And if you were sentenced to beheading, that was a good thing. Because if they got it with the first lick, it was over. They would actually pray that the person uh, doing the execution was a, good, was a good lick, was a good, was a good aim. I mean, that's, that's how bad it was because if they maimed you, and then it, was, then it would get gruesome when they beheaded you. But I don't want you to understand, nothing compared to the, to, the, to the phrase and the word crucify. The Bible says they led him out to crucify him. And then there's a side note in verse number 21. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country of the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, so In the harmony of the Gospels, I want you to understand that the Bible says, another Gospel says, Jesus bearing his cross went to Calvary. So how does does that happen? How How do we reconcile those two Gospels? If one says that Simon Serene carried the cross, and the other says that Christ carried the cross, well, simple mathematics will tell you that apparently they both carried it. But I want you to understand something. The, the, the large part was always carried by the victim. They carried it. They drug it. And to have the back end of the cross down actually put part of the weight on the ground. And so dragging the cross would be easier than somebody else picking up the back end of it and carrying it. It would be faster, but it would shift the weight toward the person in the front. So, what, what looks like an act of mercy probably wasn't. They probably did not get him to uh, carry that to lessen the burden of Christ. It could have been for their convenience to speed it up because maybe he wasn't going fast enough for them. It, there is a racial element in this. He's a Serenian. It's possible that they, being Romans, picked him out of the crowd and said, hey, you carry this. There is that element. I, I, I can't prove that, but there is that element that's that it's looming. But there's a possibility that they've told him to carry it because he's fresh and, and, and ready to go. He picks up. He's going to go at a faster pace. He's going to hold it up high, put it on his shoulder, and transfer the weight of the crossbar squarely more, more so to Christ. So any way you look at it, my friend, I want you to understand that Christ bore his cross to Calvary because the gospel said he did. And so Simon is interjected here in verse number 21. Uh, so we see this, the, uh, this purple clothes. We see this painful crucifixion. And, th- and then we see a passing Serenian that is, that is picked out of the crowd. So there's the preparation for Calvary in verse 20 and 21. There's the place of Calvary in verse number 22. There's the name, and they bring him unto the place Golgotha. And then Mark tells us a little bit, said, which is being interpreted as the place of a skull, an appropriate place to take someone to carry out this hideous, hideous torture. And so there is in the passage the preparation for Calvary, but there's also the place of Calvary, and then there's a plan at Calvary. Look what takes place in verse number 23, and they gave him to drink wine, mingle with myrrh but he received it not. Let me see if I can make you understand. There is all sorts of things that we have been taught that uh, alcohol was a very big part of the disciples' life and, of course, the marriage of Canaan. There are people who believe that Christ turned those uh, water pots into alcoholic beverages. That's what they believe. But I will say this, this was probably alcohol that they offered him, probably a reason he wouldn't drink it. I had somebody tell me one time, I had a wino tell me, he said, well, Jesus turned water into wine. I said, well, buddy, turn, if, you, if you can turn water into wine, drink all you want. But you ain't getting yours, at the, you ain't getting yours out of water, you're getting yours out of Red Rooster 21 and, and Matt, Mad Dog 21 and Red Rooster, you getting to get that, that cheap soda pop wine, this stuff get drunk you know what I'm talking about. So we see the potent cup. It was potent. He wouldn't drink it. Some say that the myrrh would have a numbing effect. The alcohol would have a numbing effect. He wouldn't take it. Why, preacher? Because he was bearing our sins, and he was bearing the full weight of our sins. Listen to me. I've said this from the outset. If Christ was trying to get out of the cross, like a lot of people say about the garden, if he was trying to get out of the cross, how come he didn't call 12 legions of angels? How come he got up from praying and said, they're here, let's go? How come he told Simon Peter to put the sword up? By the way, there was at least two swords there because he had told them to sell their cloaks and buy them if necessary. There was at least two swords. My question is, if he was wanting to get out of the cross, how come he didn't have 12 swords there or at least 11? That'd have been a pretty good fighting force, wouldn't it? 11 disciples defending you with swords, that had been a pretty good fighting force. No, he said, put it away. Live with the sword, you'll die by the sword. That was, that was the death penalty, and he was right. And he healed the evidence so they couldn't take Peter's life. Peter almost messed it up. He almost got in real trouble for trying to kill that man. But he, but, but he healed his ear back. So there's the potent cup in verse 23. There's the personal clothing in verse number 24. The Bible says that when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them. What every man should take. It was considered the spoil. And there were probably here, there was a centurion. More than likely, he had either three or four others with him. And there were the garments that were traditionally worn. And the scripture says that they gambled for them as to who got what. Do you understand? It was the only thing he owned on earth was the clothes on his back. And they stripped him of those. They gambled for that tunic because they didn't want to rend it. They did, the, other, the other gospel tells us they didn't want to tear it in pieces, so they gambled to see who would get that—that uh, that whatever man should take. It was one of the one of the prizes for being on this crucifixion detail. Is you got whatever the people had on, and you got to take the clothes home. But I'll say this. The blood-stained garments of Christ never did them any good. They were ruined by the scourging that he he had had prior, no doubt. So there is the potent cup, there's the personal clothing, there's the public crucifixion. Look in verse 25, and it was the third hour. Now let's count time the way that the Hebrews counted it. Day was counted from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Night was counted from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So the day started when you could see the third star in the evening. And that's when the day started. So it's still that way today. They start the day at 6 o'clock or thereabouts in the evening. Well, starting time, the third hour. So if we start at 6, 6 being the first hour, 7 being the first hour, 8 being the second hour, 9 being the third hour. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. That was what time it was. And the Bible said, and they crucified him. Understand they've stripped him of his garments and now they apply the nails. The reason there were four men because it would take usually three to hold the man down and the fourth one to drive the nails. But I can't imagine them having to hold the Savior down because you see, it wasn't those nails that held him to the cross. It was the love for me and you. And so I would say that Golgotha was a place of the skull. But secondly, I would say that Golgotha was a place of shame. Look what the Bible says in verse number 26. And the superscription of his accusation, which was common, they would say he was a murderer, he was a thief, they would tell what you'd done. Well, Pilate had this done. He said the superscription of his accusation in verse number 26, uh, the scripture says, was written over. And it says, the King of the Jews. I don't know if he did it as a mock, or I don't know if he did it to fulfill prophecy. I don't know exactly why he did it. But the Bible says that he displayed it in all of the languages that were commonly spoken of the day, where that everybody could see it. Whether he did it with the right reason or the wrong motive, it really doesn't matter. Because truth was being portrayed that day. What he wrote on that cross was absolutely true. But he stopped short, my friend. He wasn't just king of the Jews. Hallelujah. He's king of the Gentiles. And I'm glad, hallelujah, he's my king this morning. He's king of the Gentiles. But I'm going to take it another step, hallelujah. He's king of the human race. He's just not king of the Hebrew race, my friend. He's not just king of the heavenly race, the, the, the people that are born again. He's king of the human race. And if they had written king of the world, that would have been more, more appropriate, amen. King of the world. But in his role at that time, he was indeed the king of the Jews, and they were crucifying their Messiah, the one who had come. Now, this is full of this is conjecture, okay? And this is just conjecture. When I, when I run off on things and tangents, I, I try to tell you, this is Bartonology, okay? Not Bible truth necessarily, but here's, here's the thought. Somebody said, what would have happened, preacher, if the Jews had not rejected him? I believe the Old Testament was written in such a way that that was a possibility. I don't believe they had to reject him, okay? Okay. I don't believe they had to. I don't believe they had to. I don't believe that. I don't believe you have to sin. I don't believe that. I don't believe that you predestined to sin. I don't believe that. I don't believe it for a minute. I don't believe Peter had to deny him. I don't believe it for a minute. Why did he say, I'm praying for you, Peter? Why did he say that? I don't believe he had to do that. Did God know he's going to do it? Yes, he did. But the Old Testament was written in such a way that Jesus could have received it but probably the Romans would have still crucified him. But there's a very strong possibility. I mean, we're we're in the the 69 weeks of Daniel are being fulfilled right up until the cross. That seventh week could have come into play on resurrection morning. Christ could have had ascended to the throne, could have put the nations under, uh, I mean, could could have sent the world into tribulation and could have established the millennial kingdom. As a matter of fact, you know what he preached the whole time he is here? The kingdom of heaven's at hand, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, kingdom of heaven's at hand. We don't say that anymore. It's the kingdom of God. The day of grace is a part of the kingdom of God, which is a big, broad thing. But the kingdom of heaven was a small thing. The kingdom of heaven was he was offering them heaven on earth. You say, seriously, preacher, absolutely is what he's offering. He was offering the Jews heaven on earth. The the curse on the earth would be repealed. He would take his rightful place on the throne of his father, David. The nation of Israel would rule, and he would rule with a rod of iron. All of this would have happened. But again, this is conjecture on my part, but I want you to understand That in the midst of all of this, not at one moment, not at one time, not for one nanosecond was he ever out of control. Not one moment did he ever lose control on the cross of Calvary or on the way to the cross of Calvary. He was very God and very man. And at no time did his man overrule him being God. At no time. You'll never convince me of that. The Bible tells us about the writing that was placed above him. Again, probably because it was a place of shame. But secondly, the wicked that were positioned around him. The Bible says in verse number 27, And with him they crucified too. And the Bible tells us that they were thieves. They were people crucified. He wasn't the only one dying that day. Another one was scheduled to die. Probably Barabbas. He was a murderer. The middle cross was his. But instead, my friend, Barabbas went free and Christ took his place. And the Bible said that they put one on his right hand and the other on the left. And so the wicked, they were positioned around him. That's why we have three crosses. And when we we talk about Easter, we talk about the three crosses. Because... He was not the only one dying that day, but he was the only one dying that day that had no sin to pay. He was dying a vicarious death. He was dying on behalf of someone else. And so the scripture tells us the writing that was placed, verse 26, the wicked that were positioned, verse 27. The Bible tells us in verse 28 about the word that was prophetically affirmed. The scripture says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, He was numbered with the transgressors. Now, now make sure you understand. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Didn't say he was a transgressor. It said that he was numbered among the transgressors. He died like a thief. He died like a murderer. Why? So he could forgive those that had murdered. So he could forgive those that had stolen. He, he, he died the maximum penalty. He got, hey, let's understand. He almost died in the garden. He almost bled to death in the garden. And he almost died from the scourging. And he died on the cross of Calvary. He took every form of punishment that they had had to put upon him so that in turn he might be able to fulfill and take the place of every damnable thing that you and I have ever done. Can a murderer be saved? Yes. Can a terrorist be saved? Yes. Can an infidel be saved? If he turns to Christ, he can. An atheist can. Anyone can be born again if they'll exercise faith. And So I'd say that Golgotha, it was the place of the skull, but Golgotha was a place of shame. Verse 29, Golgotha was a place of scorn. It's bad enough that all this is happening. It's bad enough. You've heard the old saying, insult to injury, add insult to injury. That's exactly what they wanted to do. As if he was not humiliated enough, as if he had not suffered enough, as if he had not bore the sins of humanity that will cause him to cry out shortly what the psalmist said in Psalm 22. The Bible says that those on the ground, the crowd that were passing the cross, first of all, they slandered the promise of Christ. They said, and they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads. Wagging their heads back and forth. That's a, that was a, a, a Middle Eastern thing. It was like we shake our heads no. Well, they, but they, they would wag their heads. It was... A, It was was a little more extreme the way they would do it, and it was a, if I can say it this way, it was a a cruel, but it was also very contemptuous, the way that they did it and the way that they said it. And the Bible says, and saying, ah, thou that destroyest the temple, did he say that? Yes. Did he say it while sitting near the temple? Yes. Now, listen to me. This temple's going to be destroyed. In AD 70, they're gonna harness the Jews and the Romans are gonna pull it down block by block. It will be destroyed. And there could be some prophetic elements to what he said to tear this down. But here's the key to, to, so we know the, I mean, there was a prophetic application of what would take place about 40 years in the future. And that would become the end of Jewish life as they knew it. And still, they're not sacrificing. Still, they have no place like that. And so, it's still on hold for almost two thousand years. That's on hold. The whole temple was the, was the, the, the center place, the, the centerpiece of Jewish life. And they tore it down stone by stone. And so, while it may have had a, a, a prophetic application, how "I destroy the temple," he wasn't talking about the rocks. He wasn't talking about the building. He's talking about his body because he said, I'll build it again in three days. You see, they didn't understand what he was talking about. You destroy this body, I will build it back in three days. And so they wagged their heads and they slandered the promise of Christ in verse 29. But can I just, can I, I can't wait till next week. Can I just intercept, Jack, this? Son, the Roman government and that rock and everything they had was no match. <laughs> they could not stop him. Death couldn't hold him. Hallelujah. Hell couldn't bind him. <clears throat> but that's next week. <clears throat> Did you know that what they said adds added strength? Did you ever think about that? What they said to him added strength of what was going to happen. They dared him, basically. They're going to dare him here. They slandered the promise of Christ, but now they're going to slander the purpose of Christ. Come down off the cross. Save thyself. Come down off the cross. Save thyself and come down off the cross. Well, can I, can I say it this? Can I say it this way? <laughs> Now, that wasn't the plan. He had to go to the grave. But he was coming out of the grave that he might save you and I. He wasn't going to stay dead. Why do, why do we have a cross that's empty? Because we have a tomb that's empty. We don't carry a crucifix on a cross because he ain't on the cross. No, sir. They slandered the purpose of Christ. Save thyself. And come down from the cross. What did he tell Simon in the garden? He put your sword up, son, I could call 12 legions of angels. I've said this in the past, I believe it to be true. There was a mutiny in heaven one time. Lucifer and a third of the angels fell, took up their residence in the regions of the damned. But if there was ever a mutiny or the threat of it, I believe it was when the darling Son of God was crucified on Calvary. I believe the angels were setting on high alert. They were DEFCON 5. I believe the angels were ready, primed, and willing. All they needed was God the Father to say, get them, boys. If one angel destroyed 185,000 Syrians in one night, do you understand that 12 legions of angels could destroy the entire population of the earth in a matter of seconds? Do you understand that understand that there was no power, there was nothing that anyone could do. I mean, he could have easily, hey, instead of saving mankind, he could have abolished mankind. Everybody. But he had to stay on the cross to take our sins. Why? Because he was holy God and he demanded holiness. And he said, In the day that thou sins, thou shalt surely die. Somebody had to pay. Somebody had to pay for my sins. What if I was in jail and I'm in jail and I'm, well, the other boys there in jail and we're sitting around the jail cell and they're talking about different things and one of them says, yeah, I got a wife and kids at home and they're hungry and, and, I, and so the next time a jailer comes in and says, like, oh, jailer, jailer. I've got a jailer back here. Or I think he just stepped out with a baby. Jailer, can I, can I talk to you a second? Yes, sir, what is it? See this jailer right over here? He's got a wife and kids. He needs to get home to them. I'll tell you what, just put his sentence on mine and let him go. I'll take his bit, I'll do his time. The gentleman will look at you and say, son, you're in here for your own crime. You are in here for your own crime. You can't take nobody's place, you're in jail. It's not like you're an innocent man on the outside. You're willing to go in and take his place. That's not the way, not the way this works, son. You're guilty. You can't take his crime. You've got to pay for your own crime. Yeah, but I'll just take his too. That's not, you can't take his. He's got to stay. I read this a long time ago, and I've not been able to find the account. I tell it about every Easter because I believe it, I believe it is symbolic of what happened on Calvary. When the railroads started, the American railroads were looking for cheap labor, and they began to import Chinese immigrants, and the Chinese, many of them were killed in explosions. They would work them to death. I mean, the Chinese were treated horribly when they came to America. They also were good at at cooking, and they, they would open restaurants and feed the crews and things like that. They also, for whatever reason, because I guess because they wore white, they were good at laundry. And so there were two brothers, did not have parents here in the country, but they'd come over. One was younger than the other, but they were close, similar in age, similar in size. The older brother had been working at the laundry. The younger brother had gotten off early, come through Seemed like it was San Francisco was the town, but they come through and, and word come in, there was a Chinese boy had been in an alleyway gambling with some other guys. Somebody accused somebody of cheating. Next thing you know, a knife is drawn and an American lay dead in an alleyway, killed by a Chinese The Chinese boy ran home. Bloody knife, bloody clothes. Runs in, changes clothes, washes his hands, but he leaves the bloody clothes and the knife laying in the floor. And he quickly changes clothes and he runs back out. Older brother knew that the younger brother had really been courting the wildlife, thought he was gambling with his money, maybe drinking. The other older boy said, Chinese man, they're looking for a young Chinese man. Older brother goes home to see if younger brother's there and he's not. And he finds the clothes, the bloody clothes, and he finds the knife. And he realizes that his younger brother is the murderer. The older brother takes off his clothes, puts on the bloody garments, picks up the bloody knife, and goes back to the scene of the crime. They're close enough in age, same race. There's the knife, there's the blood. It's obviously him, and they quickly arrested him. And in those days, a trial would be done immediately. He was sentenced to hang the next morning. It's said that the younger boy went out and drank all night, trying to forget what had happened. And near the first light of morning, he heard that a Chinese boy was being hung for the murder of the American. The younger son runs to the city square, just in time to see the executioner drop the floor out, and his brother, still in the bloody clothes, hanging by his neck, dead. They said something happened that has never happened before. The younger brother confessed to the executioner no, 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 you got the wrong man. It was me and not him. The authorities picked up the younger brother, took him before a judge, and the judge made this statement. He said, This has never happened before. He confessed to it. He said, It wasn't me, it was my older brother. They looked at it and they said, This law says life for life. And we can't try a man for the same crime twice. And while we got the wrong man, the law's been satisfied. And therefore, young man, here's your sentence. You will live the longest day of your life knowing that your older brother, a better man, gave his life for you. Now you leave this courtroom and you make something out of your life because your brother forfeited his so that you could can I say hallelujah the savior did that for us he took my bloody clothes he took the bloody dagger he took he 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 took he, he was innocent but he loved me so much he went in and he, he deliberately put himself before the executioners. And so they're taking this all out on me. The Bible said, they said, come down from the cross. So there's the passing crowd. There's the, the priest, the chief of the priest. Likewise, the chief of verse 31, mocking among themselves, I said with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Can I say that was a true statement? He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. The chief priest didn't understand what he was saying. What he said was absolutely true. In order to save others, he couldn't save himself. And others to say, in order to save me and you from our sin, he had to die for our sin. And so, for that reason, this is exactly right. You see, I don't understand all I know about that chief priest's office. Even though it was political, even though it was a Sadducee that was the chief priest. Something about that, did you realize when that chief priest rent his garment, that was the end of the priesthood? God said, that's fine because it was never to be rent. When he ripped that garment, God said, good deal. Priesthood's over. That veil's going to rent a little bit. Yep. The gate out of hell's going to be rent a little bit. There's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk about got broke during Calvary. The rocks broke, hallelujah, because of the earthquake. The graves broke open. We could do a whole, hey, we can do a whole message on what got broke at Calvary and on resurrection morning. But I'm out of time. But I will say it, I'll just I conclude with verse, the Bible says, Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him also. That's as far as I'm going to go this morning, but at this point we got two two thieves, and both of them are reviling him. If you can imagine how wicked that is, they're dying for their own sins, and now they're reviling him and picking on him in the middle. You'd think they'd have some thought of getting right with God, wouldn't you? But they didn't. And they were Jews. How do you know? Because they were being crucified. Because Pilate had power over them. They were Jews. Or they were someone from another providence somewhere because because that's the only way they had power to do this. But let me see if I can bring us back and make us understand that the cross of Calvary was the most horrible thing and it was a disgrace. And so far, everything that we've seen, it's been disgrace upon disgrace upon disgrace. And they have done everything they can to give him the most ignoble death that was possible at the time, so that you and I might have the most noble birth that's ever been. A pauper can be born again and become a child of the king just because of the great torture of Golgotha and the subsequent triumph over the grave friend, do you know him? Let's bow our heads together.